0: As we go through our textbook on Bible interpretation, it's good to know some of the history of the English Bible, and that's going to help us in understanding how to apply the principles of Bible interpretation to the most important book that has ever been written, and it's good for us to know how it came to us, uh, how it was originally written, how it was preserved, and how we have it in the form that it is now. So This is a lesson that I've done before. and I'll point out to you when I mention uh, the answers to some of the questions on your sheet so you don't have to uh, wonder too much when we're going to get to those. Uh, so it'll be easy to fill it in. Do you want us filling it next year? Yeah, go ahead and fill it in while I'm talking here today. And you can take notes on the back or on the columns or side columns or whatever. Uh, so. Let's talk about the original writing of the Bible. That we go back to the times of Moses, who was the first to write down Holy Scripture that has been preserved for the nation of Israel, but not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world, this blessing that has come through Abraham's descendants. And so the original writing of not only Moses' books, But then all of the scripture that has come afterwards, it was produced through the process of inspiration. And that's something that we've already talked about in class as we were looking at the study to show yourself approved book, talking about exegesis, talking about hermeneutics, some of those technical terms. Well, an important term in understanding the Bible is inspiration. What do we mean when we say that the Bible has been breathed out by God and key verse there is in Peter, where Peter says that holy men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and so that what they wrote was not just human words, but were God's words. And so pretty awesome that we have a book that contains divine revelation, God's words. That's the ultimate source of the Bible, not just the men who wrote it, but the Holy Spirit who spoke through them. So that their words were from God. That's the doctrine of inspiration. And the doctrine of inspiration leads to the doctrine of inerrancy. That if it's true, and I think it can be demonstrated if I had an hour or so to lecture on it. But if the doctrine of inspiration is is demonstrably true, and I believe it is. Then, therefore, the Bible is without error. Because the Holy Spirit cannot make errors. The Holy Spirit cannot lie. Uh, Moses could make errors, Moses could lie, but the doctrine of inspiration tells us that God was working through Moses so that what he wrote was not just Moses' words, but it was God's words, and that divine element in the inspiration leads logically to the doctrine of inerrancy. Now, when we're talking about inerrancy, we're talking about the original writing. That when Moses sat down and wrote the book of Genesis, that when he was finished with that book that it was without error and that was the work of the Holy Spirit. Now we don't have the original of the book of Genesis or any of the books of the Bible and so then you have to talk about the preservation of Scripture and we'll get to that a little bit later this morning. But inerrancy I just want you to highlight in your mind relates to the original documents. Now when it comes to the Bible that we have in our hands. Here's my Greek Bible I brought with me this morning. I forgot to bring my English Bible. Um, When it comes to the Bible that you hold in your hands, it's practically inerrant. Now, preservation has been remarkable, but it's not 100% perfect. And that's one of the things we'll talk about when we get to preservation. So, inerrancy is the original autographs. We don't have the original autographs, but what we have is practically inerrant when you start to understand the science and the art of textual criticism, which we have talked a little bit about in our hermeneutics class already, and just re-emphasizing some of these key concepts here at the outset of how we got our Bible. So we got our Bible through inspiration, and that therefore leads to the doctrine of inerrancy, following logically on the truth that God cannot lie and He doesn't make errors, and the other thing I want to mention here in the introduction is that we need revelation. We need the Holy Bible as a source of truth, a source of revelation from God. Now, in our class, we've been talking about Francis Schaeffer, and we've enjoyed his book on the history of Western thought, How Should We Then Live? But he wrote many books, and he wrote a trilogy of books back in the early 1970s, and the third one in that trilogy is called, He is there and he is not silent. And I like that title for the book. That God is there and he's not silent. And so what we have in the Bible is the speaking voice of the God who is there. The God who created everything, the God who is self-existent, the God who always is and who always will be. He is there and he has spoken to us. And he's spoken to us in a book. And what better way is it to communicate with mankind than through a written revelation, a book? If God had just spoken with oral tradition, well, oral tradition is hard to verify. How do you know if people have kept the tradition? How do you know if the message has been changed? But when something is written down, then you can tell if it gets changed by comparing it with what has been written. And a book is an excellent way of communicating because it's something that can be copied, it's something that can be sent out to everyone. And that was God's plan from the beginning that His Word would be copied and it would be sent out uh, to all the nations. And so the need for revelation is there because we have, really, okay, uh, I'm trying to figure out how I want to say that. We have two ways that God has revealed Himself. One is through what we call special revelation. The Bible is special revelation. But the other way that God has revealed himself is natural revelation, the general revelation as it's called, that God has revealed himself in what has been made. Romans chapter 1 is where in the Bible it does a great job of describing the general revelation of God in creation. There's other places as well, but Romans 1 is my favorite. And what we learn from general revelation is we learn that God is there and that uh, he is the one who has created the world, among other things. So the light of general revelation comes through nature and through our conscience, that we have our, our moral sense and those elements within us, like human nature. Our own nature reveals to us the nature of God as we've been created in the image and likeness of God. But mankind rejects the, the light of natural revelation. And the light of natural revelation is not salvific, it can't provide salvation. You can't get saved just by looking at the sky and the stars and the sea and the creatures that are in the world and come to a saving knowledge of God because we are sinners. And as sinners, we are in rebellion against God. And so what natural revelation does is it shows us how we reject the knowledge of God. And that's what Romans 1 is all about. And so special revelation is the revelation of god's word, the natural revelation general revelation is god's works in creation but we don't just need a creator as sinners we need a knowledge of god as redeemer and the redemptive acts of god the redemptive power of god is what is demonstrated in special revelation in the holy scriptures where the acts of god in history that give the knowledge of salvation, and provide the basis for salvation, are communicated in a reliable way to anyone who wants to know it. So, that's the need for the Bible. And that's not directly related to how we got our Bible, but I just wanted to put that in the introduction to help us appreciate what it is that we have in our hands. Now, when it comes to the Bible, uh, we recognize that it was written by Many different authors over a long time period, starting with Moses, about the 15th century before Christ, the Old Testament as we call it, the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh is another word for it, that that part of the Bible, that initial part of the Bible, it began being written in the 15th century and it was done being written by the 5th century before Christ. So a period of about a thousand years from Moses to Malachi. And it has historical books, it has poetical books, it has prophetic books. And God put all of this together as a revelation of his own character, his own nature, and his plan to bring blessing to all nations. And so it's very uh, foundational to what we call the New Testament. You can't understand the New Testament without a good understanding of the Old Testament. I just started an Old Testament survey class with uh, our adult Sunday school here on Sunday mornings. And as I've been getting back into the Old Testament again, I've been recognizing, I think uh, a reading, a knowledge, and a faith in the Old Testament is what is going to be the best cure for the evangelical church in the West today. The evangelical church in uh, the 21st century is, is kind of in a sorry state and it's got a lot of problems and understanding the Old Testament I think is one of the best cures to fixing what is wrong with people's ideas about God and about Christ and about God's work in the world. We've, we've taken the Old Testament for granted too long and we're having our ideas about God informed by our culture rather than by God's word, God's revelation. And so we need to get back to our Old Testament, understand the holiness of God, understand the majesty of God, in order to better appreciate what God has done for us in Christ. So, just want to highlight there the importance of the Old Testament and reading it. God has given you a book. You gotta read it. And He doesn't He doesn't just give us verses. He doesn't just give us pastors. He gave us books. and. He's given you the ability to read, so read the books of the Bible. Read whole books. Don't just read part of it. Read the whole book and think about it and say, what is God saying here? What what is He communicating? What what am I supposed to learn about God and about the world and about myself from this book? And then just keep on reading books of the, the Scripture and the Old Testament. So, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic. From the 15th century to the 5th century, poetic books, prophetic books, historical books. And it covers from the creation of the world up until the return from the exile, uh, about 400 years before Christ. So it covers that almost 4,000 years of history. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we've got the four Gospels. We've got Acts, Paul's letters, the letter to the Hebrews, seven general epistles, as they're called, and the book of Revelation. And all of these parts of the New Testament were written by a variety of authors from 45 to 95 AD. So just about a 50 year time period there in the first century. And they were written in Greek. I think that's number one on the handout uh, that the New Testament was written in Greek. And we have 5,800 manuscripts of the Greek, over 5,800 Greek manuscripts plus ancient translations and quotes in the early church writings that range from the 2nd century to the 15th century. So now we're getting into the idea of the preservation of Scripture. We don't have the original autographs. We have our copies, but we have our manuscripts. And we have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of New Testament texts. That doesn't mean the whole New Testament. We don't have 5,800 copies of the whole New Testament. We've got 5,800 manuscripts of part or all. Uh, if If it's a complete Greek New Testament, we have some of those from early centuries. That's one manuscript. And it's got the whole thing. Like Codex Sinaiticus. A very important Greek codex. But we also have scraps. And we have like a papyrus scrap of the Gospel of John that just has a few... Uh, sentences on it and that counts as a manuscript. So a manuscript can be just a few lines or a few words all the way up to uh, the whole New Testament. So that gives you some idea of the volume of ancient manuscripts that are still available to us. Now, 5800, which is on your sheet, right? Is that number three? How many Greek manuscripts? Yeah. 5800 can be a little bit misleading. Uh, and that most of those Greek manuscripts are pretty late. We're, we're talking about manuscripts. Manu means hand. Script means writing. So a, a handwritten copy of some part or whole of the Greek New Testament. Most of our manuscripts are, are closer to the 15th century than they are to the 2nd century. So if the Bible was written in the 1st in the century, we have some manuscripts that date back to the early 2nd century. But not a lot. Just a a very few that go back that early. And we don't have whole copies of the Greek New Testament until you're getting into like the 4th and the 5th centuries. So, a lot of the 5800 Greek manuscripts are from the 13th to the 15th century. And they're all from Europe and they're all basically based upon the same text type. They've been copied from a similar type of thing. So, that's called the majority text. When it comes to the the textual critic's job, they've got a majority text of late texts that are all pretty similar uh, from Europe in the the early Renaissance or late Middle Ages. And that's basically the Greek text that was used to translate the Bible for the first time into English. We'll talk about translation here in a little bit. Now, when you compare the preservation of the text of the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, we have late copies of that. The the Greek New Testament, you see we've got copies of parts of the Greek New Testament that are within a hundred years of the original autograph. And that's, that's pretty awesome. There's not a lot of ancient books where we've got a copy of it within a hundred years of the original writing. But when it comes to the Hebrew, up until the 20th century, the earliest copies of the Hebrew Old Testament that we had were about 1,000 years A.D. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. A thousand years after Christ. And that's pretty late, considering Moses originally wrote the books 1,500 years before Christ at the beginning of the Bible, and Malachi wrote the last uh, book of the Bible there, around 400 years before Christ, and so you got 1,400 years between Malachi and our earliest copy of Malachi, until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls were such an important part of archaeological research and textual criticism in the 20th century, because the... 1000 AD copies of the Hebrew text that we had—they were done by a group of Hebrew scholars called the Masoretes. The Masoretes—I'll uh, write it up here for you. So the the Masoretes were the ones who were entrusted with copying and preserving the scribes who copied the Hebrew Old Testament, and when a Hebrew Old Testament, in the first thousand years of the church, among Jewish peoples, got too old to be used, they would destroy it, Uh, and they thought this was the, the proper way of disposing of a text that was no longer able to be used. And so that's why we don't have any more ancient copies of the Hebrew text, because the Jews, in their reverence for the text, didn't want a decayed text uh, around. They they thought, well, it's kind of like when we get rid of our American flag. After an American flag is flown and it's it's worn out, uh, we don't just throw it in the trash. We don't just leave it on the ground. We don't just let it decay. But we have a special way of disposing of those flags because we consider them to be kind of holy, kind of sacred. Well, that's how the Masoretes viewed their Hebrew Old Testament, they didn't just want a decayed copy around, so they disposed of it in a way that they thought was proper, so that's why we had such late copies, a thousand years uh, after the time of Christ, of these very ancient Hebrew books, so that was called the Masoretic Text, the Masoretic Text is the text that was preserved by the Masoretes and the Hebrew scholars uh, and scribes. But the Dead Sea Scrolls were not Masoretic texts. They were part of a group out in Qumran, not to be confused with Quran. The Quran is the the, uh, Islamic holy scriptures, as they think. But the the Qumran was a community that lived out in the desert before the time of Christ, uh, up to 200 years before Christ. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls took the... Our knowledge of at least some of the textual history of the Hebrew Bible from 1000 AD all the way back to the 2nd or 3rd centuries BC. So some of these ancient texts that were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls are 12 or 1300 years older than the Masoretic text that we uh, had based our English translations on. So we had the Hebrew text from the Masoretes and that was what was used up until the 20th century, late 20th century. Now the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the mid 20th century but it takes time for scholars to do the work and and, uh, get going on that so our Our textual critical studies of the Old Testament are still uh, undergoing uh, revision based upon this discovery in the mid-20th century of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the main takeaway from the Dead Sea Scrolls is that the Masoretic Text is reliable. So people were wondering, you know, this is 1,500 years, uh, no, 2,500 years. Uh, from the time that Moses wrote, how do we know if this is reliable? Uh, Like even with Daniel's book, written in the 6th century before Christ, uh, we go from the 6th century to 1000 AD, that's 1600 years. How do we know whether or not our copy of Daniel is what they had back then? Well, this is an oversimplification. We don't just have the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls although these are some of the most important texts when it comes to how we got our English Bibles, what we base our translation, our textual, critical knowledge of the Old Testament on. But there's also translations of the Old Testament. And one of the key things here is is what is called the Septuagint. LXX is the abbreviation for the Septuagint. LXX stands for the number 70. L is 50 if you know your Roman numerals, XX, two tens. So this is the number 70. And it's called the Septuagint, which means the 70, because tradition says they were 70 scholars who were involved with its translation. And the Septuagint was done, uh, I think, in the 3rd or 4th century BC. Um, I'm going to put 3rd century BC. The first part of it to be done was the Torah, the books of Moses. And that is the best translation work that was done. They took the most care with their translation of the Torah when it came to the the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so we do have copies of the Septuagint that are more ancient than 1000 AD, because the Septuagint was basically the Bible of the uh, church, uh, the Greek-speaking church, as Christians were preaching Christ from the Old Testament A lot of the quotes that we have in the New Testament from the Old Testament are from the Septuagint. So we have got the New Testament quotes from the Septuagint and we know know from textual criticism that our uh, New Testament documents are reliable. And so you look at translations, you look at different textual traditions, you look at quotations of the Bible from others. And you take all that data together to try to reconstruct what was originally written when Moses took, you know, a quill to parchment. And that's a little overview of the, the textual history, very brief, of the Old Testament in comparison with the New Testament. Now, let's compare the history of the Bible in its preservation, versus some of the other ancient writings that are supposed to be sacred writings in other religions. You guys ever heard of Zoroastrianism? Raise your hand if you've heard of Zoroastrianism. So, Zoroaster was an interesting religious figure. Um, he supposedly lived between 1,000 and 700 BC. Now, that doesn't mean he lived 300 years. It just means we don't know exactly uh, the dates that, that he lived. He's somewhat mythical, but we believe he, he was a historical figure. Sometime between the time of David and the time of Hezekiah, uh, 1, 700 BC is like the time between David and Hezekiah. So somewhere around that time period, but he's not a Jewish man. Uh, I think he was Persian. And so he left behind some writings, or his followers left behind writings, we don't know exactly, for a, that were lost for a long time. And the copies that we do have now are greatly mutilated and corrupted. We don't have a very good textual uh, history for what is known as the Zoroastrian Avesta. They're, they're, sacred writings in the Zoroastrian religion is known as the Avesta. And the copies that we do have, that are mutilated and corrupted, are from the 13th to the 14th century AD. So, three or four hundred years after the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. But the Masoretic text of the Old Testament has been confirmed by the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's also strengthened by our knowledge of the Septuagint. And there were other translations of the Hebrew, besides just into Greek. It was translated into Coptic and Aramaic and other languages. And so we can look at all those translations. And we've got a very good, reliable preservation of the Old Testament. Not perfect. There are some places in the Old Testament where we've lost what was originally written. There are some numbers, like in the book of Kings, where it says this king came to the throne when he was like one year old. And he reigned for two years. And we know those numbers are wrong. Uh, Those numbers have been lost. And so our our preservation of the Old Testament isn't perfect, but it's practically inerrant. That everything that you really need is there, and you can rely upon what is there. And the parts where we know there's a problem, we know there's a problem. So that's what I mean by practical inerrancy. That we don't have a 100% perfectly preserved text, but it is sufficient for understanding what God spoke and what God is speaking through it. That's not true with the Zoroastrian Avesta. Uh, God has not preserved that book in history, those writings in history. And from you know 700 BC to the 13th century, that's 2,000 years where we have no knowledge, really, of was it changed, was it added to, was things taken away? And so very different comparing... Zoroastrian writings with the writings of the Hebrews and the Christian church in the New Testament. Another comparison and contrast that is interesting to make is between the Bible and the Hindu sacred writings. And the Hindus, they have a collection of writings called the Vedas. Let me write that up here. Zoroaster, yeah. So Zoroastrianism has what we call the Avesta. That's their sacred writings, which are not well preserved, to say the least. And then I also want to talk about the Hindu Vedas. V-E-D-A-S So the Hindu Vedas are very ancient uh, poetry and hymns and cultic material from the Hindu religion. And the earliest copies that we have of any of the Hindu Vedas go back to perhaps the 11th to the 15th century AD. Which is again... Uh, well over a thousand years, more like two or three thousand years from their original composition. And we really have no knowledge of any changes in the text, any evolution of the text, from the time that they were originally written to the copies that we have in the 11th to the 15th century. So, uh, those are not anywhere nearly as well preserved as the New Testament or the Old Testament scriptures. And we don't have that many that go back to this time period either. So not just the, the length of time between the original composition and the copies that we have, but also the number of copies and the quality of those copies. These do not compare with the way that God has preserved the Bible. Uh, another example could be the Buddhist Tripitaka. So Buddhism arose later than Hinduism in India but didn't really take roots in India as much as in other Asian countries. And in Buddhism, they've got the the Tripitaka, and some of the writings that are important to their religious beliefs. And the, the Tripitaka, the oldest copies of that go to the late 15th century. So. The Buddha, I think he was somewhere around maybe six or 700 AD, so he got about a thousand years also between uh, the foundation of Buddhism and these writings and the earliest copies that we have of them. And then the other thing that would be an interesting comparison would be the Quran in Islam. So there are other religions that base their religion on holy books, even if their books are very different in style and character than the Christian holy books, but still writings that are important, foundational to the understanding of their religion. The Islam Quran is probably the closest thing. These are not really uh, trying to be the same thing that the Bible is, but the Quran is trying to be uh, like the Bible, and it's not nearly as ancient. As these others, Islam arose in the uh, 6th, 5th century, 6th century. I'm pretty bad at remembering stuff like that. But the oldest manuscripts that we have for the Quran is dating to within one or 200 years of the original, which is good. So, if our, I'm going to say, you know, 8th century or 7th century. Now, don't quote me on this. I'm just giving you guys a general idea. You can look up, look it up for yourself if you like. Um, now, you know, a couple hundred years is good. Uh, not a whole lot changes uh, between you know the original writings and a couple of the manuscripts that date within a generation or within a hundred years of it. And so. Uh, the Quran is not as well preserved as the New Testament. And one of the things that is observable in the Quran is that, yes, they, they destroyed manuscripts that were uh, different from what became the accepted uh, manuscript, the text. And that's not something the Christians did. Like Christians, you can see, that this part over here had a text type in Egypt, uh, and then over here in Rome, they had a text type. And we can compare and contrast the different text types and see where the differences lie, so that if, you know, one copy made an error here, that gets added on to the other copies that are made from that copy, but then you can compare it with all the different copies from all different parts of the Roman Empire where Christianity spread, And you can identify, okay, well, here's where the Western text type has an error, and all the Western texts agree on that, but all the other text types have the correct reading. And so, God's preservation of our Bible is a lot better than, on orders of magnitude, than any other religion. Now, the Quran is probably the the most well-preserved out of any of these, as far as, you know, what can be verified from the text that we have. Perhaps... You know, the Buddhist chipitaka is really well preserved, but there's no way for us to know because our copies of it are so late. Now, that's a little bit about the inspiration of Scripture and the preservation of Scripture. And I want to talk about the translation of Scripture in the last time that we have here. So, the Masoretes were the ones who copied the Old Testament meticulously. We have some of the Masoretic texts from around 1000 AD, that's number 2. On your handout. Number four is the question what is textual criticism? Textual criticism is the science and art of determining what the original autograph said based upon the copies and the translations of that text that are available to us from ancient sources. That's textual criticism. Um, Now, let's talk about the translations. So, number five the first Bible in English, was produced before the Reformation, in the 14th century, by John Wycliffe, all right? So Wycliffe is called the morning star of the the Reformation because the morning star is the first star you see uh, in the morning. It's the brightest star, and it's the last one that is still shining when the sun is coming up. Now, we could call him the evening star because it's the first star that's seen, but morning star makes more sense because the light is coming back on. And so we're talking about Wycliffe as being this pre-Reformation forerunner who saw the need of getting the Bible into the language of the common people. So John Wycliffe is the first to give us large sections of the Bible in English. Now, John Wycliffe was not a Greek scholar. He was not a Hebrew scholar. So he did his translation from the Latin. Wycliffe's translation was from the Latin text. The Bible was translated into Latin early in the history of the church because Latin replaced Greek as the lingua franca in the... Western part of the Roman Empire by the third and fourth centuries after Christ. So Greek was the the main language that was spoken throughout the empire uh, as the Romans took over Alexander the Great's empire. But eventually Latin, which was the language of the Romans, replaced Greek as the, the common language that was spoken and taught among the population of the Roman Empire. So while the Bible in the first century was written in Greek because that was the language that everybody could speak in the empire. Eventually, people stopped learning Greek and started learning more Latin, and so they translated the Bible into Latin. A number of early Latin translations were made, but the Latin translation that is most famous, and the one that John Wycliffe had, and that he worked from, is known as the Latin Vulgate. Now, the Latin Vulgate was translated by Jerome. Jerome lived about the same time as Augustine. I think he was a generation or two older than Augustine. And he was a a great scholar. And so he was a a linguist. And he could translate from the Greek into the Latin. And his translation into the Latin became the Bible for the church until the Reformation. uh, Especially in the western part of the empire. Europe and uh, all those places. So, from... For about a thousand years, Jerome's Latin translation became the Bible. And so when John Wycliffe saying, you know, we've got our Bible in Latin, but nobody in the among the people speaks Latin anymore. Only scholars speak Latin, and that was what scholars did in the Middle Ages. They would study Latin, and it was still a huge part of their culture, but the common people didn't learn Latin, just just the scholars. And so Wycliffe was like, well, I need to translate the Bible and I know Latin and I know English, so I'm going to translate from the Latin into the English. That was the first English translation. Erasmus published his Greek New Testament in 1516. I'm going to write GNT for Greek New Testament. And that was 1516. Alright? So. With the Renaissance in full swing in the early part of the 16th century, Erasmus, being a Renaissance man and recognizing that the Bible is the most important book, he spent his time compiling as many Greek manuscripts as he could. He got as many Greek manuscripts of the Bible as early and as reliable as he could get his hands on, and then he began that work of textual criticism. And he said, okay, I'm going to compare the text, I'm going to try to do my best to figure out what was originally written and so he published a critical edition of the Greek New Testament in 1516 now of course the printing press is all a huge part of this and now you got this revival in ancient uh, learning and see going back to the sources and where, where what is the source of Christianity what's the source of our faith well it's it's the Greek New Testament and so Erasmus spent his time on that. And then once the Greek New Testament was published and then put into the hands of, of other educated men, then they could translate from the Greek into the common language. And of course, Martin Luther uh, did that. He kickstarted the Reformation in Germany. And he spent years translating the Bible from the Greek into the English. And when it comes to our English translations, the man who did the, the most pioneering and the best work... translating from the greek into english was of course william tyndale my hero so william tyndale he became a greek scholar and his passion his life's work was to get the bible in english into the hands of the english people and so he died in 1538 for doing that He was executed as a heretic for translating the Bible and publishing the Bible in English against the law of the church, the Roman Catholic Church. And so he was strangled and then he was burned at the stake. But he had done most of the work that he needed to get done by that point. God allowed him to to complete his work, so to speak, before his death so that The Tyndale translation of the Bible went through a series of revisions after Tyndale's death, and it became the basis for what we know as the King James Version, which was published in 1611. So Tyndale's translation leads to the King James Bible, which we call the KJV, King James Version, originally published in 1611. That 1611 King James Version has undergone many revisions over the years and you have in your hands the 1611 King James Version, you'll recognize how much language has changed in the last 400 years from the time of the publishing of the King James Version to now. What has also happened in the last 400 years is we've discovered many different and older manuscripts than what was available to Erasmus and then, of course, to Tyndale, whose work was based upon Erasmus' Greek New Testament. So Erasmus was just beginning to collect manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. He had a handful, but now we've got over 5,800 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, some of which are much more ancient than the majority text that Erasmus was working from. So Erasmus had the late manuscripts that were all from Europe. We've got early manuscripts that are from Egypt and from the Holy Land and from Asia and from all different parts where Christianity, early Christianity was. And so we've updated and revised our Greek New Testament hundreds of times in hundreds of places from this. And that's why our modern translations of the Bible, which sometimes get attacked by people who are King James-only people... Uh, who believe that the majority text type is the text that God has preserved for us, and that we shouldn't be using other texts. But uh, the more informed position, if I'm allowed to say that, is, is that these older texts are closer to the original, and by comparing all of those, we can get a better Greek New Testament than the majority text that Erasmus used. And so that's why I recommend using the New American Standard or the ESV or the NIV that are based upon the minority text. The minority text has less text, but they're older and more reliable from a textual critical point of view. And so the new translations are not bad. They're they're different in certain places because they are closer to what was originally written. Now the King James Version is fine. There's nothing in the King James Version that's going to lead you astray or give you false doctrine. Uh, But it's not as well preserved as the translations that are based upon the earlier texts. So I wanted to give you that history of the Bible, how it was originally written, how God preserved it, and how it's been translated into English. It's interesting to do comparisons with other religious books, other ancient books, uh, one thing that I wanted to point out that I didn't get to say is that uh, when you look at other ancient books that are not religious, uh, for example, the uh, uh, Tacitus has a, a book of history, a Roman historian, and uh, Tacitus has a, a great... Uh, history of of things that were going on in the Roman Empire and the first six chapters of his book on Roman history we only have one manuscript of it. So, it's almost completely lost. An important book, a valuable book, we have one manuscript. Compared to the 5800 manuscripts, and again, don't be misled thinking those are all early, but still, a lot of good early manuscripts and a lot of late manuscripts. and so close to the date of the original composition that there's no doubt that what we have is a reliable representation. It is practically inerrant, as I said, when it comes to knowing what God has communicated to us. God has preserved his word. Now you have a little bit better understanding and knowledge of that. All right, so we're done for today. I'll send out the assignment by email. And next week, I'm going to be gone but you'll have a, a guest speaker, Deb Deer, who was here filling in for me before. She's going to come back and do some some other good material with you that she's shared in the past. So next week will be a good week, and I look forward to seeing the video of that. Thanks.